Welcome to the Clinical Guidelines Podcast Series from the Infectious Disease Society of America, where we will regularly keep you up to date on important new guidelines. This is Dr. Jim Horton, Chairman of the Guidelines Committee. Leading this program is Dr. Neil Skolnick, who is Professor of Family Medicine at Temple University School of Medicine and Associate Director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Memorial Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Skolnick. Thank you. I'm looking forward to going over the guidelines. And now for the program. Today we're going to look at the IDSA Clinical Practice Guidelines for Diabetic Foot Infections, which is going to be published in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases this spring. As discussed in the guidelines, diabetic foot infections are an increasingly common problem that's associated with a great deal of morbidity. Given the increasing prevalence of diabetes, diabetic foot infections should remain an important clinical entity for the foreseeable future. Diabetic foot infections usually develop in either a skin ulceration that occurs as a consequence of peripheral neuropathy, both sensory and motor neuropathies, or in a wound that was caused by trauma. In addition, up to 40% of patients with diabetic foot infections have peripheral vascular disease. On a good note, amputation due to diabetic foot infections in the United States has decreased by almost half in the last decade, likely as a consequence of better attention to preventive foot care and correct treatment when infections occur. The importance of understanding the guidelines is highlighted by a study in a UK hospital that reduced the total incidence of amputations by 40% and major amputations by 62% over an 11-year period following improvements in foot care services, including the creation of a multidisciplinary team. One study, which was an analysis of a number of Dutch studies, concluded, and this is a quote from the guidelines, management of the diabetic foot according to guideline-based care improves survival, reduces diabetic foot complications, and it's cost-effective and even cost-savings compared with standard care. Joining us today is the chair of the Diabetic Foot Infections Guidelines Committee, Dr. Benjamin Lipsky. Dr. Benjamin Lipsky is a professor of medicine in the VA Puget Sound and University of Washington, and is joining us today from Oxford, UK. Welcome, Dr. Lipsky. Thanks, Neil. Uh, since we only have about 20 minutes to discuss the guidelines, we'll restrict our discussion to the highlights of the guidelines, and we'll encourage our listeners to go to the IDSA website at www.idsociety.org to download and read the full guidelines. Let's start with diagnosing diabetic foot infections. How should we assess a diabetic patient presenting with a foot wound? The first question that uh, most clinicians should uh, think about when they see a diabetic patient with a foot wound is what's the cause of the wound? As you mentioned in the uh, uh, introduction, it is often related to trauma, but that trauma is usually occurring in the setting of uh, peripheral neuropathy and often ischemic peripheral vascular disease. Once establishing the cause of the wound, the next key question is whether or not the wound is infected because that makes a major difference in how we approach the wound. We assess the wound at three levels. The first is the patient as a whole. Is the patient systemically unwell? Does he show evidence of metabolic instability? 
what is the psychological and social situation because these may all play into how we care for the patient. Next, we move down to the affected limb and foot, looking for evidence of peripheral neuropathy, ischemia, and bony or other soft tissue deformity. Finally, we get to the wound, looking for evidence of infection, which we define clinically as the presence of redness, warmth, induration, pain or tenderness, or purulent secretions. Well, that's helpful. Uh, so once we've assessed the patient clinically, uh, what are the recommendations regarding uh, imaging? First, uh, generally imaging for the diabetic foot, and then if we're concerned about osteomyelitis. When we see a patient with uh, a probable uh, diabetic uh, foot wound and we are concerned about the possibility of infection, the first imaging procedure that we generally recommend is plain x-rays. Uh, we're looking for evidence of bony abnormalities that might represent osteomyelitis or potentially neuroosteoarthropathy, which occurs in people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy. But we're also looking for evidence of foreign bodies, uh, gas in the tissues, uh, and occasionally other findings. If there are abnormalities on the x-ray or the clinical exam suggests that despite a negative x-ray, the patient may have uh, a deep-seated problem, then we move on to more sophisticated imaging. And many studies have been done that demonstrate that magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, is generally the most diagnostically helpful among those. If we move on to specifically imaging around the question of is osteomyelitis present or not, I would start by saying that there are some clinical findings that can be helpful. For example, a long duration of the wound, a wound located over a bony prominence, a positive probe-to-bone test where you feel bone when you put a metal probe in the wound, or the presence of elevated inflammatory markers like the sed rate or uh, C-reactive protein. But if you feel that you need an imaging uh, test, which often we do, again, MRI comes out as the best of the currently available imaging studies. Where MRI is either not available or contraindicated, uh, the best uh, study uh, after MRI would be uh, a white blood cell or potentially anti-granulocyte scan, which is the best of the nuclear medicine scans, and these are best done combined with a bone scan if that's possible. That's really helpful. The question then comes about wound cultures and how important is it to obtain a wound culture, and if you choose to, what's the best way to obtain that culture? Let me start by saying that uh, clinically uninfected ulcers should not be cultured. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, uninfected ulcers don't require treatment, and it's difficult sometimes to resist the urge to treat when you grow organisms, which you inevitably will if you culture even an uninfected wound since it's open to the environment. Moving on to infected wounds, I think it's important that you uh, do culture the wound so that you can direct your antibiotic therapy in most instances. Um, you have to select appropriate material for the culture to be useful, so we want uh, clinicians to send tissue most easily obtained by scraping the base of the wound after debridement and cleaning. This is called a curatage, uh, and we strongly prefer that people not send swab wounds because they're shown in a number of studies to be less accurate than sending tissue for culture. So we generally believe that in culturing infected wounds is useful, but in a patient who has a mild infection and has not recently had antibiotic therapy, the organisms causing the wound are fairly predictable, and in that instance, cultures may not be necessary. Well, that's really helpful. 
finishing up our discussion around diagnosis, uh, if we're concerned about osteomyelitis, uh, is it helpful to obtain a bone biopsy? Yes, bone biopsies are helpful. They're the definitive uh, criterion standard for diagnosing osteomyelitis based on uh, either a positive culture or positive histology. Sometimes we get a specimen of bone at the time of surgery when bone's removed. When that's not available, then we can do a percutaneous biopsy uh, of the bone. It's not needed in every case, but it is especially uh, useful when there's diagnostic uncertainty or uh, we have inadequate cultures available from the soft tissue, or if a patient has failed to respond to what we think is appropriate antibiotic therapy and there may be organisms that are resistant. So we think bone biopsies are useful. We, d we know that they're generally safe, although some people worry about the, uh, the potential adverse effects. There have been thousands of uh, reported cases in the literature, and adverse effects of bone biopsy are, are very infrequent. So when you need more information about the causative organism, especially when, it, when you're going to treat somebody for a long period of time for a possible bone infection, bone biopsy is useful. Well, that's helpful. Now in the second half of our podcast, let's go on to talk about treatment, and we'll discuss in order the place of surgical consultation, the importance of uh, proper wound care techniques, and then antibiotic choices. Uh, first, when should we consider consulting our surgical colleagues? If you're not a surgeon yourself, I think you should consider consulting uh, with a, a surgeon that has uh, knowledge and experience uh, about foot problems in virtually all cases of severe infections and in many cases of moderate infection. Uh, I might take a moment to just say that the IDSA classification scheme divides infections clinically into those that are mild, which are superficial and uh, contained in size, moderate, which are deeper infections, but uh, in the absence of any systemic findings, and severe infections, which are infections uh, that are accompanied by fever, leukocytosis, or metabolic instability. So where you have a severe infection and sometimes where you have a moderate infection, uh, we think getting a surgeon to uh, look at the patient and decide whether or not some form of intervention is necessary is definitely a good idea. We think that surgical consultation should be urgent in the presence of certain kinds of findings, particularly evidence of necrotizing fasciitis, gas in the deep tissue, evidence of a deep abscess, extensive gangrene. And if the patient appears to have evidence of critical limb ischemia, as uh, noted by ankle brachial index or other kinds of studies, we certainly think you ought to get a vascular surgeon to assess whether or not some form of revascularization is necessary to cure the infection. Well, that's helpful. Um, now let's talk for uh, a minute about wound care and specifically uh, the place of debridement, choice of dressings, and uh, pressure offloading. Well, I'm glad you've raised that because uh, infectious disease doctors in general uh, and um, other clinicians often think about antibiotics as the cure for infections. And antibiotics are necessary but not sufficient to actually cure diabetic foot infections. Most patients need some form of surgical intervention Often it's just minor intervention, which we call debridement, which is removal of callus or any full thickness dead tissue called eschar. Uh, but sometimes in, patients need incision and drainage or other forms of uh, more extensive surgical treatment, including revascularization or, unfortunately, in many instances, amputations. So debridement is certainly an important place to start. The next thing we think about after we've debrided a wound is what's the most appropriate dressing. 
There are many kinds of dressings on the market. We tend to think very simplistically about this. Wounds heal best with moist wound healing, and there are lots of different dressings that provide that. And if the wound is uh, exudative, then you need to put a dressing on that will control by absorption the excess exudation. Beyond that, we generally say base the type of dressing you put on by the size of the wound, its depth, and the nature of the ulcer, what caused it in the first place. I would uh, add that we don't advocate using topical antimicrobials for clinically uninfected wounds, although many uh, wound healing people uh, tend to think that that may prevent infections if they're not currently present. There's no good evidence at this time to support that, and so we don't advocate it. Finishing up with wound care, it's important to deal with, uh, as you mentioned, the offloading or redistribution of pressure off the wound. We don't want a patient to walk out of the office with the same pair of shoes that caused the wound in the first place. It'll never heal. So what we have to do, particularly for plantar wounds and sometimes for wounds on other locations, is to put on some kind of a device ranging from uh, a particular uh, shoe to uh, the uh, best type of offloading device, which would be a total contact cast, to redistribute the pressure off the wound uh, to the rest of the foot. That's that's really helpful. Let's go on now and discuss the microbiology of diabetic foot infections and uh, recommendations for antibiotic treatment. And let, let's begin uh, with mild infections. What are the main organ organisms that uh, we're concerned about and uh, the recommendations for antibiotic management? Most mild infections, uh, especially in a patient who's not recently had uh, other antimicrobial therapy, are predictably caused by aerobic gram-positive cocci, particularly staphylococci, staph aureus being the most common, and also streptococci, where group B streptococcus rather than group A is the most common in diabetic foot infections. The antibiotic regimens to treat these can usually be oral, and they can usually be relatively narrowly focused agents, uh, including agents such as dicloxacillin, cephalexin, clindamycin, or occasionally, if you need a broader spectrum agent, you can think about uh, ones such as amoxicillin clavulanate or levofloxacin. Some of these infections may be treatable with topical antimicrobials if there's uh, an appropriate one available. Where there's concern for MRSA uh, because of various risk factors, then we might consider oral treatment with doxycycline or trimethoprim sulfa for mild infections. And the duration of treatment for these does not have to be long. One to two weeks is usually sufficient in some cases where the infection is responding slowly, uh, we might treat for up to three to four weeks, but that's infrequent. That's helpful. And then how about for moderate to severe infections? For moderate infections, especially if they're chronic or the patient has previously been treated uh, unsuccessfully with antibiotics, we begin to see more complex bacteriology, uh, and we worry about the potential for uh, the presence of aerobic gram-negative rods, as well as obligate anaerobic organisms. Because of that, we use a broader spectrum to start with, at least for our empiric therapy, and sometimes start with parenteral therapy, but can usually switch to oral therapy fairly quickly once we know the results of the culture and the sensitivity of the organisms and see how well the patient is responding to the parenteral therapy. Regimens could include relatively broad-spectrum agents uh, such as fluoroquinolones like levofloxacin, advanced-generation cephalosporins, ampicillin, sulbactam, or ertapenem. 
with severe infections because of the risk of losing a limb or occasionally even a life in patients with a severe diabetic infection, we virtually always start with parenteral broad-spectrum therapy and then constrained therapy based upon the patient's uh, clinical response and culture and sensitivity results. We tend to uh, treat people with a very broad spectrum covering for aerobic gram-positive cocci, gram-negative rods, and obligate anaerobes, and consider MRSA coverage if there are any risk factors for that. The duration of therapy for both moderate and severe infections is usually uh, somewhere between one and four weeks. The fact that the infection is more severe doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be treated longer, and the absence of bacteremia one to two weeks is often sufficient for even severe infections. Well, that, that's helpful. And then how about if there's a concern about osteomyelitis or if a patient has osteomyelitis? The key issue when you're thinking about infected bone is whether or not this, the bone is surgically removed. So in patients who have uh, osteomyelitis, resecting the necrotic and infected bone can leave just a soft tissue infection. And in those patients, very short duration of therapy is sufficient, sometimes as few as uh, three to five days of treatment. If you think you've left behind some infected bone but not necrotic bone, then generally we go with the usual recommendation for osteomyelitis of four to six weeks of therapy, typically starting parenterally and then switching over to oral therapy, although there's uh, it's not clear whether or not parenteral therapy is actually necessary, and there are ongoing studies looking at that issue uh, currently. Uh, if uh, you uh, have a patient who has uh, infected and necrotic bone remaining and you don't think you can remove it surgically, sometimes we treat patients for a prolonged period of time if they can't undergo surgery, upwards of three months. That's helpful. Uh, a question I'm often asked by my colleagues is, uh, then I think you've covered it very nicely in talking about particularly mild infections that they're often concerned is pseudomonas or anaerobic organisms a part of the uh, infection, and do they always need to cover for it? And also, uh, when do you uh, cover for MRSA? Well, I get that same question from my colleagues, so I'm glad you raised it. So pseudomonas is uh, not infrequently grown from diabetic foot wounds, particularly if the patient has been soaking their foot or getting some form of uh, water therapy, such as uh, uh, water debridement therapy, uh, because pseudomonas, of course, is a water organism. In most of those cases, at least in Western developed countries, pseudomonas is a colonizer rather than a true primary pathogen. There's been a lot of data from uh, countries that are in uh, warm climates, uh, particularly in lesser developed countries, where uh, wearing sandals and having uh, uh, hot climates with sweating of the feet uh, leads to pseudomonas being more often a primary pathogen. Uh, but putting that issue aside, we think that it's usually not necessary to worry about empiric therapy against pseudomonas for most diabetic foot infections. So <clears throat> although many people feel the need to put patients on anti-pseudomonal agents, we would say that that's not generally necessary. Faculty, uh, excuse me, obligate anaerobes are an interesting issue as well. They are usually isolated from wounds that are ischemic or necrotic, which is where anaerobes like to live. We think that the best anti-anaerobic agent is oxygen, and so debriding the wounds, opening them up, getting rid of the necrotic material, 
is probably the best way to tr deal with the anaerobes, but certainly in patients with uh, severe and perhaps some with uh, more extensive moderate infections, anti-anaerobic agents in wounds, particularly if they have a foul feculent odor that suggests anaerobes, certainly could be appropriate. Well, thank you, Dr. Lipsky. This was incredibly helpful uh, going over the guidelines. Uh, just to recap for our listeners, we talked about careful clinical assessment. We talked about diagnostic testing initially with x-rays for all patients with diabetic foot infections, and then for patients with potential deep infections if there's a need to rule out osteomyelitis in the uh, case of a negative x-ray, then MRI would be the study of choice. We also talked about the importance of wound cultures and cor the correct way to obtain wound cultures. Then we went on to talk about uh, uh, wound management and the place of surgical intervention and consultation with our surgical colleagues. And then you went over nicely the uh, place of antibiotic management and, and the different uh, approaches to mild, moderate, and severe infections, with mild infections being primarily gram-positives and usually uh, requiring oral therapy. But then as patients go on uh, and you're looking at an approach to moderate and then severe infections, the prevalence of polymicrobial infections, including gram-positives, uh, aerobic gram negatives, and anaerobic organisms becomes more and more important, uh, and therefore broader spectrum antibiotics and with severe infections, parenteral antibiotics become important. Uh, for more information, we'll ask our listeners to go to the Infectious Disease Society website at uh, idsociety.org to download a full version of the guidelines. And for the Infectious Disease Society of America, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I want to thank everyone for listening. And Dr. Lipsky, thank you so much for joining us from uh, Oxford, UK. Thank you. My pleasure.